for coming back again this morning to our series in John's Gospel. And uh, today we're looking at John chapter 8, verses 31 to 59, uh, the second half of this block of teaching or conversation recorded in John chapter 8. Jesus continues now to discuss and debate with the various people who oppose him or misunderstand him. In verse 30, where we ended last time, we read the encouraging words that even as he spoke, many believed in him. And verse 31, the start of our section today, opens with the words, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said. Therefore, whatever people are present in the wider mix of those gathered around Jesus as he teaches in the temple courts, it does seem that Jesus is primarily addressing this group who had expressed some initial belief in him to the Jews who'd believed in him, Jesus said. The difficulty is that what Jesus then says and the responses from the Jews gathered around him doesn't suggest a great amount of true understanding or belief. If uh, this is the group who had initially believed, verse 30, then it must have been quite a shallow belief. The seed had clearly fallen on rocky ground. Or it could be that some of the responses in this chapter are coming from those in the wider crowd. We don't know, and at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, since what we have here in God's Word this morning is the teaching that that we ourselves need to hear. So let's have a look then at what John records for us. John chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now that's an interesting start, isn't it? How do you know that you're a true disciple of Jesus? Well, the true disciples are those who hold to his teaching. Verse 31. Those who believe and continue to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to die for the sin of the world. Those who continue to trust in Jesus as Savior and who seek to obey him and follow his commands and teaching. Those who live with Jesus as Lord throughout their life. As Eugene Peterson would say, it's about a long obedience in the same direction, a steadfast holding to the teaching of Jesus throughout the whole of our lives. We're going to talk in a few weeks' time about the eternal security of believers and the fact that uh, we cannot be snatched from Jesus' hand, uh, Jesus doesn't let us go, that, that we will persevere to the very end. But the other side of that is that the proof of being a genuine Christian, a child of God, is that we are still following Jesus when we die. Right to the end of our lives on earth, we hold to his teaching not giving up on the gospel message and not compromising on what Jesus says about how we should live. If we hold and continue to hold to his teaching, then we are really his disciples. Verse 31. Look with me at what else Jesus says. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They, the Jews gathered around him, answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? 
Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We sing those words, don't we, in one of our newer songs. Uh, Who the son sets free is free indeed. Or while I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. That's what Jesus is talking about here as he explains the nature of true discipleship. Following Jesus begins with a recognition that we need to be set free. We need to be set free from sin and slavery to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, says Jesus, verse 34. The Jews, though, don't like that idea at all. They answered him, verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? With a a blatant disregard for their history of slavery in Egypt and exile in Babylon and the current occupation by the Romans, they say, we have never been slaves of anyone. But the truth is that they, like every other person on the planet, are in slavery to sin unless the Son has set them free. Their ancestry is descendants of Abraham, and the status that they think that gives them doesn't solve the fundamental problem of the human race. For ever since Adam, we've been sinning. We've been doing things that are wrong according to God's holy standards. We lie, we hate, we slander, we covet, we steal, we treat our parents badly, we treat other people badly, There's abuse and adultery and murder and injustice. The human race is motivated by self-interest, self-centeredness, and often greed. And as Jeremy McCoy said last Sunday evening, even people who basically live good lives in the eyes of the world don't come even close to God's standards of perfection. And so the fact that we as human beings do these things and keep doing these things proves that we are in slavery to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, says Jesus. We can't help ourselves. Because sin is so much part of who we are and our experience of the world, we are in bondage to it. We're in slavery. We can't stop doing these things that we know are wrong. Our continued actions just prove the reality of our situation like a person addicted to alcohol or or drugs. It's as if we're addicted to sin as human beings. We know what we do is wrong. We know we are responsible for our actions. And it it is right that we should be judged for what we do. But it feels like we can't help ourselves. We are biased towards sin. We are slaves to sin. So how do we get free Well, Jesus says, verse 32, that if we hold to his teaching, then we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. We'll know the truth of our situation, and we'll know the truth that Jesus can save us. The Son will set us free, and then we will be free indeed. We'll become sons, uh, children with, with a permanent place in God's family. And that is what has taken place for many of us here this morning who are Christians. That's why we can sing, I'm a child of God, for the Son has set me free. That doesn't, of of course, mean that we no longer sin. Sometimes non-Christians think that that Christians are holier than thou. People who live a good life, 
people who are judgmental of others who don't live up to the same standard. But that's not how we should understand ourselves as Christians. As Christians, rather, we are those who recognize that we were once in slavery to sin and that we have yet to be free in entirety from the presence of sin. In some ways, as Christians, we become more conscious of the sin still remaining in our lives. We know the truth of our situation. The timing does make it complicated, but I think it's helpful to think in terms of three P's. Penalty, power, and presence. As Christians, we have been saved from sin's penalty. We are being saved from sin's power. And we will be saved from sin's presence. Let me explain that a bit more clearly. As a Christian, I have been set free from the penalty of sin. I've been justified through Christ's blood shed from me on the cross. I have been given the status of sinless, just as if I never sinned. And I am therefore no longer under God's condemnation. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Secondly, because of God's grace in my life and the power of God's Holy Spirit working within me, I am being set free from sin's power. I'm being sanctified. I have an increasing desire to choose the right way. In the past, before I was a Christian, I would have chosen sin at every opportunity. Even the choices that I made that might have appeared good to me or to others were were actually choices that were motivated by pleasing myself. And therefore, ultimately, they were sinful in God's perspective. I wouldn't have recognized that, and many folk who are not Christians today would not recognize that. They, They think that they're basically good people living a good life. But from God's perspective, even our own good works are filthy rags because of the underlying motivation and attitudes. Before we come to Christ, we choose sin without even knowing it. It is our choice, but it's an inevitable choice because of the bondage we are in. That, however, is not my situation anymore as a Christian. I was a slave to sin, but not anymore because the Son has set me free. I died to sin and was raised to new life with Christ. I'm to count myself dead to sin and alive to righteousness, Romans 6. No longer am I allowed to let sin reign in my mortal body or to to obey its evil desires. And as the Holy Spirit sanctifies me, I grow in holiness and am increasingly saved from sin's power. Not that that makes things easy. It doesn't, as you yourselves know. It is still a real struggle. There is still so much sin in my life, wrong attitudes, wrong thoughts. But the Holy Spirit is transforming me slowly. I am being saved from sin's power. And one day, I will be saved from sin's presence. And that number three is what I am looking forward to, to being saved from sin's presence. One day, the fight will be over. You know, the, the greatest challenge I face in this world is not financial trouble or relationship issues or health concerns, as difficult as those things might be. 
But the greatest challenge that you and I face in this world as Christians is the struggle to live in the way God wants us to live, to keep control of our tongue or to keep control of our thoughts, to behave in a loving way to to other people, to behave like a child of God. It's exhausting, relentless, the struggle with sin. But one day, sin will no longer be an option for me. I will be permanently confirmed in my choice to follow God. I won't won't be surrounded by temptation. I, I won't have any desire to sin. I can sit back and relax and let down my guard because there will be no chance that I will ever do anything wrong. Isn't that amazing? And I will be in a living in a world in which there will be no sin or evil at all. No one else will ever sin against me. One day, you and I will be glorified and saved from sin's presence. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin will be gone. Those the sun sets free will be free indeed. Jesus' words, though, don't seem to get through to his listeners. They're still thinking about their privileged status as descendants of Abraham. So verse 37, Jesus says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. So Jesus is saying that they can't be Abraham's descendants because they're not behaving as Abraham would have behaved. It should be like father, like son. A few weeks ago, I met a man for the first time who'd known my father. And I'd never met him before. But after a few minutes, he said, you're just like your father. Uh, Same mannerisms, same way of speaking. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not, but it's probably true. As children, we behave like our parents. And that is Jesus' point. Since the Jews are behaving in a way that Abraham would not have behaved, they cannot be Abraham's children. Abraham wouldn't have killed a man who came from God and spoke God's truth. But verse 41, they protested, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. I'm not not sure if that's a slur in Jesus' parentage or not. Perhaps not. It's maybe simply that they get that Jesus is telling them that they're not the spiritual children of Abraham. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. So Jesus is saying that they can't be God's children either. They're not behaving like Abraham. They're not behaving like God. If they were God's children, they would love Jesus. They would recognize him. They would recognize that he'd come from God. Verse 43, Jesus continued, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. 
So, yes, the Jews gathered around Jesus, hear the words, but the truth doesn't sink in. They, they can't hear in the sense that they can't understand or accept. A bit like listening to some highfalutin lecture about, uh, I don't know, social policy or public finance, and it goes straight over our heads. Uh, not that Jesus' words were particularly complex, it was just they couldn't accept them. So, Jesus tells them straight, verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. They're not Abraham's children. They're not God's children. They are, in fact, children of the devil, because they behave like him. Their desire to kill and their rejection of the truth are exactly what the devil does. He was a murderer from the beginning, verse 44, in that it was, it was because of the devil that sin and death entered the world, and because of that sin and evil that human beings then started murdering one another. And Satan is a liar in that he distorts God's truth and rejects God's truth. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. And ever since, he's been deceiving us with his lies and causing us to doubt God's goodness and the goodness of God's commands. The devil is the father of lies and always rejects God's truth. The Jews are behaving just like them, like him, so they must be his children. Jesus continues, verse 45, yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. And there's the fundamental problem, really. The reason they can't hear is because they don't belong to God. Their eyes haven't been opened. They are spiritually blind, or or perhaps better still, they're, they're spiritually deaf. You know, Satan has filled their ears with soundproof earplugs. I wonder if you've ever had to visit a a noisy factory floor and had to put those ear defenders on. Or maybe you can think of a time when you were in a very noisy room and you were were opposite someone who was speaking to you and you had absolutely no idea what they were saying. You had to take off the ear defenders or you have to move to another room before you can hear them speak. And in a similar way, God has to take the earplugs out of our ears to open our spiritual eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is, what he's come to do. That's why we need to pray for our friends. Pray for the five people on our list that we were encouraged to pray for last week. Pray that God would help them to hear, help them to see. And what an incredible question there in verse 46. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Could anyone other than Jesus have said that? You know, could anyone else have said to their enemies, point out my flaws, point out my sin, point out where I've done wrong. With anyone else, they would have had a field day. But not Jesus, the sinless Son of God. It's like the Jews give up on the argument at this point. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? You're mad. What are you talking about? Verse 49, Jesus replied, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself. Jesus thinks that would be the wrong thing to do. But there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. 
In other words, the Father is the one who will glorify the Son. Verse 51, very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And this they exclaimed, now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Their categories for greatness only extend as far as Abraham and the prophets. Abraham was their greatest ancestor. The prophets were those who who heard directly from God. Abraham died. Moses died. The prophets died. Who do you think you are that you can offer life? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Of course, they firmly believe that it wasn't possible to be greater than Abraham. And yet, the irony is that, yes, he is greater. Jesus is in a completely different category of greatness. He alone has the words of eternal life. Whoever obeys his words will never see death. They will never experience the eternal spiritual death that is coming. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Verse, 40, verse 54, Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is it one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his words. So again, Jesus claiming that he's come from God, he knows God, he obeys God's word, that God is his Father and that the Father is the one who glorifies him. And then as we get towards the end of our passage, verse 56, Jesus says to them, your father Abraham, the one you claim as your father, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Which is another of these incredible claims that Jesus is making. And you can sort of understand why the Jews struggle to get their heads around it. Abraham presumably looked forward to the coming of the Messiah in the sense that he looked forward in faith to what God had promised him. God had promised him that through his offspring, all people on earth would be blessed. And Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. The Jews, however, understand Jesus to be claiming to have lived long enough to have seen Abraham, which again they think is absolutely nuts. Verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham. So Jesus is probably about 32 years old at this point. So either they're not a very good judge of age or they're giving him the benefit of the doubt. The very oldest you could possibly be is 50. So there's no way you were alive when Abraham was. And then the climactic verse of this section of John's gospel, verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. There it is. There's the climax. That's what John has been building towards. Before Abraham was, I am. We've had this coming. Chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus said, If you do not believe that I am he, Verse 28, then you will know that I am he. 
Jesus has already deliberately been using God-like language in his discussion with the people. Now he makes that absolutely explicit. Using the name of God given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Jesus calls himself, I am. I am who I am. I am who I will be. It's a claim to being Yahweh himself. Sometimes people suggest that Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, he absolutely did. And there is no doubt among the people what he is claiming. And hence their immediate response to pick up stones and stone him for blasphemy. They know he is claiming to be God. It's just that they don't allow for any possibility that it could in fact be the case. For many other lips, it would be false and utter madness. But standing in front of them is the pre-existent, incarnate Son of God. He who has always existed as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Before Abraham was born, Jesus existed. Jesus doesn't say, before Abraham was born, I was, I was born. No, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. I existed and always will exist. The pre-existent Son, that just means that God the Son was with God the Father before the Incarnation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed in their triune relationship. They have always been there, and they always will be. But the point in the passage is that Jesus, a human being, standing before the Jews that day in the temple courts, announced to them in all truthfulness that He was and is God. God incarnate, God in human form, fully God and fully man at the same time. It's mind-blowing, and it does take a step of faith to believe it, and it does require the work of the Holy Spirit to open our minds to the truth. But it is true, and it's amazing. Because Jesus is God the Son, all the things that we've looked at so far this morning are worth taking seriously. It's only because Jesus is fully God that he was able to rescue us and set us free from slavery to sin. It's because he's God that we hold to his teaching. And it's because he is God that we will never see death. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for sending Jesus into the world to set us free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And we're really looking forward to the day when we'll be set free from its presence. 
and enjoy eternal life with you. And in the meantime, please help us to hold fast to Jesus' teaching, uh, to be his true disciples, to obey him and live with him as Lord. And we do ask for those known to us and even maybe present today who are not yet Christians, that you would open their ears to hear the truth of these things. That they wouldn't be like the example of the Jews in the story today who dismissed Jesus as mad or, or bad, liar or lunatic, and failed to realize that he was actually Lord and God. Help them to see, we pray. And help us to share this gospel message with a world that so desperately needs it. For your glory we ask it. Amen.